Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the talks from the 2022 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of April 23rd and 24th at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London. Adam Wood is editor of Ripperologist magazine and the former editor of the Journal of the Police History Society. He is the author of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective, the notable British Trials volume on the trial of Percy Lefroy Mapleton, and co-author with police historian Neil Bell of Sir Howard Vincent's Police Code 1889, and also the co-author of a series of Edgar Walking Guidebooks with Blue Badge Tour Guide Richard Jones. Adam is the owner of the nonfiction historic crime publishing company Mango Books, and his talk at this year's East End Conference is on Dr. Thomas Bond and his profile of Jack the Ripper. Uh, before, I, before I start, ladies and gentlemen, I'd just like to say that I'm only standing here today because the original speaker for this slot, Andy Ayer, uh, was unable to prepare his talk through illness. Um, it's good that he's been here yesterday, and I think he's coming you know, this afternoon. He obviously doesn't want to hear me speak this morning. <laughs> um, but I've, heard, I've known Andy for 30 years, um, and I know that his plan talk on his Ripper research from the 1990s especially uh, would have been excellent. The content is great. So hopefully we can get to hear that talk at some point in the future. And because of the short notice, a relatively short notice, I've been unable to prepare a completely new talk. So I'm going to revise a talk I've given today on Dr. Thomas Bond and his profile of the Ripper. I've only given it once, which was the launch of my book on Donald Swanson. And I know that a few of you were at that event, uh, so this is your chance to either enjoy it again or go for an early lunch. I'll leave it up to you. Um, but as, as I said in that, at that talk, and um, I think it's, it's important today, Carl's just touched on it about arriving at the pub yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, is that everything in life has cause, context, cause and effect. None of us beamed into our chairs directly this morning out of nowhere, and then after the conference finishes, we're not going to cease to exist. And that's the same with uh, the profile of the Whitechapel murderer prepared by Dr Bond. It's widely seen as the first attempt at profiling serial killer, and as we will see, was used by respective criminologists soon after the Whitechapel murders for their own research. But he wasn't just sitting on his hands in an empty room waiting for Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson to ask him to get to work. There was a reason he was approached to do so. The report didn't just appear from nowhere. And as with everything else in this case, there were a number of circumstances which led to Bond preparing his profile. This talk is more about the history of the document than the contents itself. So let's have a look at the doctor's background and the events leading to his preparing the profile in November 1888. Born in Somerset in 1841, Thomas Bond was educated at Taunton and then as a student to his uncle, Dr McCann of Southampton, before training at King's College Hospital in London. In 1866, he joined the Prussian military service at the time of the Austro-Prussian War and he followed his return to London and set up a practice in Westminster. <coughs> Bond was appointed divisional surgeon to the Met Police's A Division in March 1867, which included the officers employed at Scotland Yard. As surgeon to the Met, he dealt with many important cases, including the murders by Mary Piercy, Henry Wainwright and Percy Lefroy Mapleton, yes. and the Thames Torso murders, which we heard about from Susie yesterday, Suzanne, sorry. 
<laughs> Dr. Bond was described as being one of the best of medical witnesses because of his clear evidence. So it's no surprise, therefore, that Bond was one of those attending the scene at Mary Kelly's murder in Miller's Court on the morning of 9th of November, 1888, joining fellow doctors William Dukes, George Baxter Phillips and Frederick Gordon Brown, and detectives Aveline, Reed and Moore. This isn't a real photograph, by the way. <laughs> it's from the Michael Caine, 1988, shot, of course. Now, Dr Thomas Bond might have been in demand that November, but... 1888 had actually been a difficult year for him, and he might not be involved in the Ripper case at all after a year of arguments with Commissioner Sir Charles Warren. And if we know anything about Warren, it's that he seldom backed down from an argument. I was carrying out research for my book on Swanson when I saw a file at the National Archives titled Salaries of Police Divisional Surgeons, which sounds a bit boring, but good information for the book, I thought. But when I looked inside, I saw a batch of correspondence between Bond and Commissioner Warren which, while related to divisional surgeon salaries, was definitely more in keeping with the Whitechapel murders file. The dispute between the two men came started on New Year's Day, 1888, when Bond discovered his medical services were no longer required at Scotland Yard. <coughs> Seeking an explanation, the, so the following day he wrote to the Commissioner, saying, Dear Sir Charles, in the most casual manner I learned yesterday that I have been superseded in my appointment as surgeon to the police of Scotland Yard. This has been done without giving me the slightest notice of any such intention, nor have <coughs> I heard any complaint or any reason why my attendance on the men should cease. I am informed that the gentleman who has been appointed to supersede me is Mr Frederick William Farr, a young surgeon, just two years qualified, with no medical qualification. He may be a very excellent surgeon, I do not know him, but he would not be allowed by the local government board to, sick, to attend sick paupers till he had passed a medical examination. <coughs> Why this gentleman had been picked out for such a responsible appointment, of course I have no right to inquire, <coughs> but having been intimately acquainted with the secret history of the Metropolitan Police for over 20 years, I know pretty well the wire pulling agencies that manage such appointments, and I am sure, quite sure you would disapprove of. I think, however, you would agree that I have a right to inquire why I have been superseded without notice and without reason. On the 1st of February, Dr Bond was followed up by writing to the Under Secretary of State, complaining that the removal from his care of members of the Executive Branch of Scotland Yard and also the officers of the CID had been done without sanction from the Home Secretary. In fact, Bond had been misinformed about his replacement. It was not the young Dr Frederick Farr, but the experienced Dr George Farr, who was a divisional <coughs> surgeon of L Division at Lambeth, and at 54, some nine, year, nine years older than Bond. Dr Farr lived at 175 Kennington Road, and was very much at the centre of L Division. Farr gave evidence in a couple of interesting cases in 1888. The first was that of Thomas Huberfield, who had attempted to murder his own daughter by cutting her throat on the 13th of September. Huberfield said that the weapon, a razor, had been bought to cut his own bowels open because he felt something creeping about inside. Dr Farr testified that he'd known Huberfield as a patient of unsound mind for 18 months, his main delusion being that he had animals crawling around inside him. Two months later, divisional, divisional surgeon examined an injury to 19-year-old Ellen Worsfold, who had been stabbed in the abdomen in the early hours of the 15th of November in Westminster Bridge Road. Although not life-threatening, the wound bled freely. 
Her attacker, Collingwood Fenwick, was caught and charged. Sir Charles Warren's response to Bond's complaint and the subsequent Home Office inquiry was perhaps predictable, with the Commissioner laying out the facts to the Under Secretary of State as he saw them. Warren wrote, Dr Bond is mistaken in saying that he was appointed to the Executive Officers of Scotland Yard and the Detective Force more than 20 years ago. He has no claim to a monopoly of medical charge of the constables at Scotland Yard. The general rule of the service has always been to place them in as far as practicable in medical charge of the surgeon where they live in, which is a natural method of proceeding. On the 26th of November 1887, a representation was made to me by the four heads of department of the Commissioner's Office, namely the Executive Branch Criminal Investigation Department, Public Carriage Branch and the Lost Property Office. They would be greatly conduce to the comfort of the men in the Commissioner's Office, who are nearly all married and live on the south side of the river, if the Divisional Surgeon of the L Division were to deal with the sick of the Commissioner's Office. This was recommended by the Assistant Commissioner and was approved by me as desirable, as the A Division is so large and the men in the Commissioner's Office live on the other side of the water. It's never been the custom of the Commissioner to give notice to surgeons of any change in his nature, which are actually going on every day. For example, 76 men were a few days ago added to the A Division for duty during the session, and no complaint was made by Dr Bond as to the addition without giving notice to him. The matter rumbled on into March, with Bond once again writing to the Home Office, this time to underline the fact that neither Chief Constable Dolly Williamson nor Assistant Commissioner James Monroe knew anything about his removal. And the Metropolitan Police Chief Surgeon Alexander McKellar had not been involved in the decision either. Warren's response was to provide evidence of the increasing number of men under Dr Bond's care over the years, illustrating that the surgeon was unable to attend properly to their medical requirements. For six years from 1877, the number of men remained steady at around 430, but in 1883, the figure jumped to 535 and had subsequently risen steadily until in 1887, there were 746 officers employed in A Division. This was, in course in, of course, in addition to Bond's consulting practice, his work at the Westminster Hospital and the Great Eastern and Great Western Railway Companies. There could be no argument that Dr Bond had attempted to take on more work than he was able to cope with. And a clue to the reasons why why for this would appear in his obituary in the British Medical Journal in 1901, where it was noted there could be no doubt the married father of six would, would have distinguished himself as a surgeon, but for the necessity of providing for the needs of a large family, compelled him to accept work which interfered with a purely surgical practice. <coughs> on, must have sensed he was fighting a losing battle, battle for on the 25th of May 1888, he wrote to the receiver of the Met, claiming the salary for the half year, to the 31st of December 1887, the day before he discovered he'd been superseded by Dr. Farr. Dr. Bond's letter <coughs> claimed that since the 13th of November 1887, he'd lost the financial reward of treating five superintendents, 38 inspectors and 124 constables, as these had been transferred to Dr. Farr. Needless to say, payment was not forthcoming. The end of the drawn-out affair came in late autumn of 1888 when Dr Bond consulted with Alexander McKellar, Chief Surgeon to the Metropolitan Police. He's shown here on the far right uh, in lecturing new recruits. The result was Bond's resignation on the 4th of October 1888 from his duties as medical officer for the men employed at both the Commissioner's Office and the Detective Department of Scotland Yard. 
He now recognised the advantages of these men having access to medical attention close to their homes. Dr McKellar later wrote to Warren, confirming the direction which Bond wished to take. He said, Mr Bond is not only assistant surgeon to the Westminster Hospital, but is and has been for many years lecturer on medical jurisprudence at the medical school. He has had a very large medico-legal medico experience and he would naturally prefer to be referred to by the Commissioner as a medico-legal expert than to retain charge of an extra number of men that would necessitate frequently long journeys to the south of the river and would further in many instances disqualify from being consulted in police, civil and criminal business in the higher capacity of medical jurors. I consider it would be an advantage to the service that he should be consulted in medico-legal difficulties. Although this promotion of sorts for uh, Dr Bond was not put in writing until the 1st of November 1888, it seems that Bond's decision had reached the ears of the Commissioner's Office sooner, for on the 31st of October, Charles Warren composed a letter to the Under Secretary of State, confirming that Bond now appreciated the difficulties which might arise should he continue to have medical charge of the Scotland Yard men. Importantly, Warren then confirmed that Bond naturally prefers to be called in by the Commissioner for Civil and Criminal Business, in which he is an expert, instead of other specialists. Given his stubborn refusal to back down over Dr Farr's appointment, Warren's enthusiasm for Bond's medico-legal expertise is interesting. This was referred to in a letter to the doctor dated the 25th of October 1888, in which the Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson <coughs> appealed for direction as to the possible medical knowledge of Jack the Ripper. Anderson wrote, In dealing with the Whitechapel murders, the difficulties of conducting the inquiry are largely increased by reason of our having no reliable opinion for a guidance as to the amount of surgical skill and anatomical knowledge probably possessed by the murderer or murderers. I brought this matter before Sir Charles some time since, and he has now authorised me if you will be good enough to take up the medical evidence given at the several inquests and favour him with your opinion on the matter. He feels that your eminence as an expert in such cases, and as it entirely in that capacity that the present case is referred to you, will make your opinion specially valuable. Bond then began to prepare his response to Anderson's request, studying the inquest reports of Marianne Nichols, <coughs> Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. But before he could submit his conclusions, Mary, Anne, uh, Mary Jane Kelly was murdered at Miller's Court, and a surgeon was asked to conduct a post-mortem. His autopsy reports, believed to have been dictated for his assistant Charles Herbert to write down, were subsequently submitted on the 16th of November 1888, and revealed the true horror of what had been done to Mary in her room at Miller's Court. Although we need not dwell on that here, it's important to note that the post-mortem report was lodged with the Whitechapel murders file soon after the murder, but would at some point go mysteriously missing. Bond's profile of the murderer, requested by Robert Anderson in late October, was written on the 10th of November and lodged in Home Office file, this is important as Taylor's number, A49301. In it, the doctor concluded that all five murders had been committed by the same hand and that all the victims had been lying down when their throats were cut. While the object of each murder was to carry out the mutilations, Bond felt that these had been inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge, not even the knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer and any person unaccustomed to cutting out dead animals. The killer was a man who was subject 
to periodic attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, and the character of the mutilations indicated he had uncontrollable sexual desires. He was likely to be a quiet, inoffensive looking man, solitary and eccentric in his habits, most likely without regular work, but with some small income. He may have lived among people who had some knowledge of his character and habits, but he may have been suspected he was not quite right in his mind at times. They would probably be unwilling to go to the police for fear of trouble or notoriety. Dr Thomas Bond's notes on the Whitechapel murder have, from almost from the time they were written, been seen among the very first attempts at profiling a serial killer. But it had not been for Charles Warren's obstinacy about the doctor's overloaded practice, it's possible he may not have been asked to prepare his report in the first place. But by the time Bond's thoughts had been submitted, Warren had resigned as commissioner. So, so much for the background to the report, and now to the, the future history of them. First to request access to Bond's notes in September 1892 was Dr. Arthur MacDonald, an official at the US Ministry of the Interior at Washington. Dr. MacDonald approached the Home Office requesting copies of official reports relating to the condition of the bodies of the victims of Jack the Ripper. He had attended the London and Brussels conferences on criminal anthropology held in August that year, and had already met with permanent undersecretary Godfrey Lushington. And MacDonald had a second meeting, this time with Assistant Undersecretary William Byrne, where he explained that he hoped to publish the relevant medical reports in American Blue Books as well as a, a French scientific magazine. On the 28th of September, Lushington wrote to decline the request. MacDonald, no doubt disappointed but undeterred, published his book Criminology the following year, seemingly relying on newspaper reports of Mary Kelly's injuries. <clears throat> More successful was Dr. Gustav Olive, a professor at the School of Medicine in Nantes. He'd been having been instructed to investigate a case similar to in nature to the Whitechapel murders, in late 1894, he wrote to Sir Edward Bradford, who was by then the commissioner, requesting a copy of Bond's report. This may have related to the murder of three young women in Austria six weeks earlier, reported by Reuters as the work of a Jack the Ripper type. The body of the first victim, a 21-year-old hotel waitress in Amherst near Innsbruck, was found on the 22nd of September 1894 in the countryside with five stab wounds to the neck. A razor-edged knife was found nearby. In her closed fist was a handful of her assailant's hair. A second victim was discovered in a meadow three days later, stripped naked and extensively mutilated. And the body of a third victim was found near the village of Muders, also hacked to pieces. Dr. Aleve was told by the Commissioner's Office to contact the Home Office, who had to grant permission for Bond's report to be released. The Frenchman subsequently wrote to the Secretary of State on the 8th of November, who forwarded the request back to the Commissioner. Two weeks later, Bradford wrote again to confirm the profile sent to the Home Office in 1888 was the only general report made by Dr. Bond upon the murders in question. Rather embarrassingly for the Home Office, that original report now appeared to be missing. A note dated the 26th of November 1894 admitted, this report was with A49301, but cannot now be found. Ask Commissioner to send Monsieur Olive a copy, if he has one, unless he sees serious objection. A response by the perhaps exasperated Robert Anderson on the 7th of December stated, this has been done, a copy of the report in question is now attached. A new carbon copy of Dr. Pond's profile was stamped 10th of December 1894 and inserted in the official files. 
But by the time Ollie's <coughs> request was dealt with by the Home Office, a month after his initial request, a bricklayer named Joseph Meyer had been arrested and confessed to the murders in the Tyrol, going on to show police where he buried victims, uh, items stolen from the victims. But where had Bond's report been earlier in 1894? I'll give you one guess. Was it a simple case of a civil servant not looking too hard for the report, or perhaps <coughs> Chief Constable Melvin McNaughton borrowed it from the files a few months earlier in order to write his memorandum? in which he echoed Bond's opinion that there were five Whitechapel murders, mur uh, murder victims killed by the same hand. While the official report would find its way back into the official files by the time Ripper researchers were granted access in the 1970s, Bond's autopsy report on Mary Kelly was missing until 1987, when it was anonymously returned to Scotland Yard along with the Dear Boss letter and papers relating to the Cripping case. In my opinion, these documents had almost certainly been held in the personal files of Melville McNaughton, and now I'll explain why. When Sir Melville died on the 12th of May 1921, his personal papers passed to his wife, Dora Emily Sanderson, who in turn passed away on the 8th of January 1929. It would have been expected for the eldest son, Charles, to inherit them, but he was at that time in Montreal, and in fact he died there of pneumonia in February 1931. Sir Melville McNaughton's papers were thus inherited by the eldest daughter, Julia Donner. Including the documents were what I believe to be McNaughton's rough notes made in preparation for the official memorandum. Julia allowed her sister Christabel, Lady Abercornway, to copy the notes, and that copy became what is now known as the Abercornway version. There's a very young researcher there with uh, <laughs> McNaughton's grandson. The Abercornway notes were first accessed by Ripper Researcher in 1959 when journalist and author Daniel Farson and then in 1986 when Keith Skinner was given photocopies by Crystal, Christabel Abercornway's son Christopher McLaren. They were photographed for the first time by me on the 1st of February 9, uh, 2012 in Christopher McLaren's kitchen. Christopher is Melvin McNaughton's grandson. The Abercornway version shows that McNaughton was convinced the Ripper had five victims, echoing Dr. Bond's conclusions in his profile, and this is what framed the Whitechapel victims in the public consciousness of the canonical five. Interestingly, in the Abercornway version, which, remember, is probably a copy of the original draft of the official report, McNaughton claims that a suspect named Kuzminski closely resembled a man seen by a city PC in Mitre Square, near Mitre Square, which was curiously removed for the official version. Daniel Farson began working on a television programme, Farson's Guide to the British, uh, scheduled for transmission in November 1959. While staying with his friend, Lady Rose McLaren, he happened to mention his work for the programme, which would include a segment on Jack the Ripper. Lady Rose was amazed by the coincidence, saying she planned to take him to visit his, her mother-in-law, Lady Christabel Lady of the Conway, who happened to be Melvin McNaughton's daughter. Farson would later write of the meeting, a few hours later at Mainham Hall, I explained my interest to Christopher Abercornway, and she was kind enough to give me her father's private notes, which he copied out soon after his death. Farson was given permission to use these notes on the condition that no names were revealed. And on the 12th of November 1959, the second part of Farson's Guide to the British was screened. In it, he discussed the Abercornway version and some of his suspects adhering to maybe on Abercornway's wishes by referring to the received chief suspect by the initials MJD. 
When Dan Farson's book Jack the Ripper appeared in 1972, promoting Druid as the Ripper, it was reviewed by The Guardian by journalist Philip Loftus, who happened to be a friend of the McNaughton family. He wrote, My own interest in the Druid possibility started even earlier than Mr. Farson's in 1950, when I was staying with an old school friend, Gerald Melville Donner. I saw framed on the wall what I took to be a copy of the first letter claiming to come from Jack the Ripper, and before the third murder, murder, written in red. Copy be damned, said Gerald, that's the original. He told me that Sir Melville McNaughton was his grandfather, and he showed me the private notes in Sir Melville's handwriting on official paper, rather untidy in the nature of rough jottings. This framed letter sounds very similar to Dear Boss, which was first noticed as missing from police files in 1928. Who was Gerald Donner? He was a son of Julian McNaughton, who married Edward Donner in 1903. They had two children, Eileen and Gerald, who was born in 1907. When Julia died on the 2nd of October 1938, Gerald inherited the family papers, which included the draft notes of McNaughton's report, and subsequently copied by Christopher Arthur Conway, and other Ripper material, including the letter in red, later seen by Philip Loftus. Gerald would marry three times, first in 1928 to Pearl Sanderson, who resulted in daughters Gillian and Rosita. The couple divorced in 1937. The following October, he married Mia Miles, with a son named Anthony being born in November 1939. Mia agreed a decree absolute in September 1949 on the grounds of her husband's adultery, and she subsequently met a farmer named McConaughey and lived with him at Bunkers Hill Farm in Hampshire. In 1953, a court rejected Gerald Donner's claim that he owed less maintenance because of Mia's remarriage on the grounds that Mia and McConaughey never actually married. In December 1951, Gerald Donner sailed from Southampton to Bombay with Eileen Vetch, apparently his third wife, but there's no record of a wedding. Their intended home, recorded on the passenger list, was Madras. It seems that the Ripper material travelled with him. Donner died in Madras on the 19th of November 1968, and his will dated the 5th of November 1956, appointed Kiffin, Peterson and Lloyd's Bank of Madras as his executors. They renounced probate because the, innocent, uh, the estate was insolvent, and Gerald's possessions were left to Eileen. <coughs> in 1988, author Paul Begg made contact with Gerald's daughter Gillian from his, his first marriage to Pearl Sarnison. Gillian told Paul that her sister Rosita had visited their father in India in 1954 and apparently seen several framed Ripper letters on the wall at his home. Rosita offered to take the letters back to England, but Donna apparently declined. He told Rosita he was planning a return to, to England, but whether he did so or not is not known. This is the last time that Donna's Ripper material was seen for certain. Gillian put Paul in touch with Raymond Gardner, a solicitor at London-based law firm Gordon Dads. It was Gardner who had handled the estate of Eileen Donner, Gerald's widow, who herself had died in London in May 1970. In a will dated November 1962, she'd left her possessions to Gerald in the event of him predeceasing her to her brother James Reynolds Fetch, but he died in January 1964. So Mr Gardner informed Paul that as both husband and brother had died before Eileen, her property had passed to her friends, George Fernley Whittingstall and Gaythorne Wade Goff. Two months later, on the 3rd of July 1970, the Donner family solicitors 
Rawlings and Co. place a notice in the Times seeking the whereabouts of Mia Donna, Gerald's second wife, using the address they had for her at the time of the maintenance case between the couple. The reason for Clark Rawlings and Co.'s attempt to trace Mia is not known, but it's interesting that they did so just weeks after Eileen Donna's death. Were they in possession of Gerald's Ripper-related material, which Phony Whittingstall and Gough declined to take custody of? Mia Donna died at Epsom General Hospital, District Hospital in Surrey on the 20th of October 1988. At the time of her death, she was living here at the Linden, Linden House care home, just a mile away. She was 74 years old. Eleven months earlier, in November 1987, an anonymous package was sent to the Crime Museum at New Scotland Yard in an envelope postmarked Croydon, Surrey. It contained various official reprobated documents, including Dear Boss, believed to be the letter written in ready, seen by Philip Loftusson on Gerald Donner's wall in 1950, Dr Bond's post-mortem report on Mary Kelly, and material related to Crippin. Linden House Rest Home is less than five miles from the Croydon post area, postcode area. And while I'm continuing research as to ascertain when Mia Donna moved to Linden House, if she did so a year before her death, it would neatly coincide with the return of the documents. Did her son, Anthony Donna, sorting his mother's papers in preparation for a move to Linden House, discover the ripper material and return it to New Scotland Yard? This has been a story which started in New Scotland Yard that's travelled to Whitechapel, Austria and Bombay before ending at a care home in Epsom. But as I said at the start of the talk, every step has been connected and a consequence of a previous action. Context is king. Thank you very much. Material is missing, you know, and taken by police and hidden in their homes. And I, I suspect there's, there's probably quite a bit. Obviously, the um, Lindsay will remind me of the name in a moment. There's an officer who took, I think, the post mortem photographs disappeared into Arthur, so I can't remember, the user was a Banton slide presentations. Remember his name, Andy? I can't remember that. I know who Dello or it. someone, was it? Someone like that. But an officer took, again, those, those pictures came back in 88 from the family sent them in. Um, I'm sure there's lots of various files which have gone. The, file, um, the correspondence file, as I said, which I discovered about Bond and uh, Warren, it gives context to the report. Wasn't missing, it just been placed, for my mind, in the wrong file, but whoever filed it away thought they were doing the right thing. So I'm sure there's lots of files which are in the wrong place, in different archives, and it's just adding to the story to build more and more context, really. So it's still there, ready to be discovered, pretty much. Hopefully. So I came in yeah. late, I apologise, that was your story. Did you mention June? So you lived in Croydon? I didn't mention June, no. no. It struck me ages ago that he lived in Croydon, and whether that came by his family. Andy Ailey should have done this talk. <laughs> <laughs> Jew's family actually were in Croydon, and although he died in Worthing, and that's where he's buried, 
um, the family were employed at that time, so I've often thought yeah. it was Jews family because of the connection with the Cripping case, because it's Cripping and I completely understand that. that, in that, that. But, but, but my, my thinking is that Dear Boss was probably the letter seen by uh, Loftus. It may not have been, don't forget. There were lots of other red ink letters. Which I understand you can that, see. yeah. I understand so, what my thought process is. Well, I think those those returned in uh, eight seven. Yeah, but it's still building up, isn't it? Don't you put it back in the news again? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But as I say, I mean that could well be the case. Mm. But equally, it could be that Auntie Donna was clearing his mum's house, so she'd gone in the care home and found all this material. Yeah. I think also, from the top of my head, that the date when they came back. In 1987, wasn't it November? Yeah. Wasn't it around the time of Mary Jane's anniversary? Yeah. What, 1987? Yeah, in, 19, in 1987, well, what I'm saying is when we actually got it back at the yard, I think it was November the anniversary. Okay. I'll have to check with people. I just really interested in Melbourne McNaughton stashing stuff for eBay. Yes. That's what it sounded like, honestly. Yeah. I'll have that. Yeah. That's very um, So, um, the correspondence sounds fascinating between Bond and Warren and then kind of trying to get the home office involved. Does it shed any light on the different relationship because I know Warren um, had a very prickly relationship yeah. with the Home Secretary. Was Bond trying to play off the two sides? I think there's, there's one key phrase in, um, in one of the letters which I did mention there is that um, Warren obviously played things by the book and he wasn't afraid to upset anyone but Bond wrote I know the secret workings and I'm not afraid to, yeah, that's you right. know, so that's like a veiled threat that if I don't get my way, I'm going to spill the beans, you know, how I've got this post over the last 20 years, make shot myself in the foot. <laughs> I think that's, that's definitely a part of it. Are you all aware of Abelard's diary? <coughs> and his, his handwritten accounts, of, he didn't write much about the Ripper, but he wrote an awful lot. Handwritten, which I think Paul discovered, didn't he? I think reminiscences, not reminiscences. You're right, yeah. But, but a lot of people don't realise that his own, in his own handwriting, he has mentioned um, a, a lot of, of his cases and included newspaper clippings of pictures of himself involved with the Parnell trials, uh, everything except the Ripper. But they do exist. I also think it's. Um, when I think about Thomas Bond more than anything else, it is about the profile and then just how advanced it was and um, just sort of he was a pioneer in many ways of something mm -hmm. yeah. I'm not just a doctor, I think mm -hmm. this is what happened and I think everyone pretty much I'm not quite sure about the they were all lying down when they were killed thing, but um, um, he's pretty much on the nail. I think there's only Alice McKenzie I think I disagree with and he said he probably was a ripper or he mentioned that he I think that's quite interesting yeah. Mackenzie because the next year he did write that he felt it was from the same hand and I wonder yeah. if he'd have submitted that report after Mackenzie yeah, yeah. we'd now have a canonical six yeah yeah, yeah there's a chance and I'll see him where it was as well just based close to not far it's very sad that he committed suicide and a horror really hor through a window yeah. just a yeah any more questions I'm happy to do a conference on Thomas Bond. I think you should understand. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I really do. Um, okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Adam Wood.
RipperCast would like to thank all of the speakers at the 2022 East End Conference for allowing us to release this year's presentations. And a special thank you to the organizers, Carl Kopek, Andrew Firth, Mark Ripper, and Adam Wood. If you would like more information on the East End Conference, you can join their group on Facebook or follow us here at RipperCast and we'll keep you updated. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.